Voyages of Pim Better Podcast. Hey everybody, we are back, finally. I'm sorry that it's been so long. There was a computer crash, and that is why it has been 20 days since I've put out a podcast. Today is going to be quite a bit different from the first 15 podcasts that I've put out so far, or the first 15 episodes, rather. Today, I'm being joined by Sally Frischberg, who is a Polish survivor of the Holocaust. I first met her three years ago when I booked Sally to speak at the high school that I was working at. Now, the Museum of Jewish Heritage were really helpful in in setting this up, so thank you to them and to Tracy Schwartz in particular. But the speech that she gave to the kids and the staff back then was incredibly powerful, and I thought that it would be good to have her on, first of all, just because I think for everyone's you know personal education, this is a really important story. But I think, too, now you can see how divisive we are getting um, with people on the political spectrum moving to the far right and moving to the far left. And I think that with that, there's at least the potential danger for us to start picking groups and ostracizing them and, and not hearing them and, and putting blame on them and in some cases even fearing them. And so I think that the message that you're about to hear from Sally is, is, is critical at this time. Now, her personal story, she told me, will take many hours to tell. So we cut this one off today at about 50 minutes. So this is only going to be part one. I'm hoping to have Sally back in like two weeks for part two. And then at that point, we'll see how many more episodes we need to complete her full story. Um, so I, I hope you enjoy this. It, I kind of sat there most of the time and, and just listened. So it's, it's really powerful. It's, it's heartbreaking. But in the end, I think that Sally has a message of something that's really simple and something that we've talked about on here before, but it's just love your, your fellow human and try to see, see the good in other people and to see other people's perspective. I think that you're about to hear it, but in particular, Mr. Arnold, who she talks about, was someone who extended... Uh, kindness and, and service to her family. And, you know, he, well, you're about to hear, but he's someone that you, you never would have thought would have done something like that. So let me know what you thought about this one. Uh, you can always hit me up on social media, shoot me an email. Um, I really hope you enjoy it. All right. That's enough of my rambling and fumbling and bumbling. Here is Sally Frischberg. Okay, and we're rolling. So today I am super excited to have Sally Frischberg on the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. How are you doing today, Sally? I am 
So far, so good. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So I, I was thinking instead of like delivering a line of questioning, why don't we kind of start at the beginning? And if I need to interject with anything clarifying, then I could do so. Is that okay with you? By all means, yes. Okay. So I guess the, the start of your childhood in, in Poland, right? That is right. Okay. Uh, I am all ears, Sally. <laughs> it's a big story, Tim. I'm glad to hear you're all ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So where does this begin? It begins for me in 1934. Okay. That's when I was born, which, if you remember, makes me five years old when Poland was invaded by the Germans. Wow. So you're in the right place. I was born in the wrong place, right. but you're in the right place and in the right time because I'm just on the cusp of when memory starts mm. and what happens means something. I'm always trying to make sense out of things, and I can't. And as I look back now, I think the reason I couldn't make any sense out of anything was because of the fact that no one could. We were living in a blind kind of society, deaf, dumb, and blind. We didn't know what was happening. You see, I'm so used to walking in, and the first thing I do when I walk into my house, before I take my coat off, is put on the TV. What happened today? Now, this is probably a statement of my great anxiety. But it's also because I'm a person interested in the world. I want to know what's going on. We had no such avenues. We were, one was guessing and the other was agreeing or disagreeing, but nobody knew anything. And so I think had we known something, at least for the Jewish people, I think it would have made a huge difference. I think Jewish, so as you listen to me, be prepared to understand okay, no problem. that my thinking is Jewish thinking because I was in an entirely Jewish environment. I was a little girl right. with my family. My family was Jewish. My grandparents, well, I had no grandmothers. By the time I, the, world's, the war started, I had only two grandfathers. And they babied me the way grandfathers do, and they distracted me, and they amused me. But I learned nothing from anyone. And I quickly learned that being Jewish made my situation more difficult. I didn't know yet how much more, but I knew quickly that it's more difficult. Do you think at, at five years old already you understood that? I understood that, the. you see, when we played on the street and we kids played with dirt, we were poor kids. Wow. Polish children were poor. And even today, Tim, they're not having an easy time. Mm. I know I'm in touch. Right. And I know that life for Polish people is difficult. Okay. So then it surely was terrible. I mean, they have been defeated in a war. What can be worse? 
So when we played on the street in the dirt, they used to say to me very frequently if they became angry with me. We played beautifully together. And I was the only child in their group because it was a small community. And my being their age was really the only thing we had in common. We, we ate different things. We spoke a different right. language at home. I speak Yiddish because at home, my family spoke Yiddish, as did most families like mine. And I think the city Jews became more integrated and therefore uh, spoke uh, Polish, which I spoke too. Now I've forgotten, which I'm sad to have to admit, but this is what happens. But then I knew to whom to speak Yiddish, that's Jewish, or Polish, that was the national language. And when we played very nicely and we made stuff with, you know, you take dust and you take water and you make mud and then mud you pie. make things. Mm -hmm. That, that this, these were our toys. Okay. And if I did something they didn't care for, they said to me, dirty Jew, go wow. to Palestine. You're a Christ killer. A whole speech. Wow. I had no idea what it all meant. And they didn't either. Right, I was just going to say. My mother made me wise to that because I asked her. I said, why do they insult me differently than each other? And then we play again. What's going on? And my mother said, because what do you say to a five-year-old? My mother said, they don't know what they're talking about. They get it. It's stupid. You go play with them, because I had no one else to play with. Mm -hmm. My sisters were smaller, and therefore, you know, I wasn't going to play with smaller sisters. That didn't suit me. I wanted the kids that were my age. Mm -hmm. And this went on all the time. But it alerted me to a difference, which I have been trying to fill in, some of it to my great satisfaction, because I, I read a lot of history, and much of it is about Jews. And I like Jewish behavior through the historical realms. It, it tells me that I come of a people who, tough as we have it, we don't consider giving up. We always think of trying to improve things, which is the way I'm made. Whatever happens in a circle, anywhere, if I look in and I see an opportunity to make things better, I'll go for it. You know, if there's a union meeting and I see that they're eager to get it at each other, I say to myself, this one is bothered by this, this one's bothered by that. How can I unite? How? And this is a constant with me. And I've begun to think that in the Jewish community, that's what's keeping us alive. The notion that, yes, we can make things better. Don't give up. So this is as I'm growing and not going to school because I'm quickly informed that Jewish people can't go to school. I am feeling this need to make things better. 
And I think that to this very day, the need has not changed. I still have that need, and I work at it. We'll see what will come of it. So at five, you weren't allowed to go to school? No, I was Six was when I was supposed to start school, and my mother got me all beautifully dressed and, you know, a hanky in my, in my pocket and my white collar and the whole works. And she said, brought me to school, and in school our teacher told us a story. And the story had to do with the birds flying around and gathering food and building nests. And as it's happening, some of the birds are dying. They have accidents and whatnot. And then the teacher comes to the end of the story and he says, who can go to the board and summarize this story numerically? Now, I understood the instruction because I had a wonderful uncle, Naftali. And my uncle, Naftali, used to teach me ABCs and numbers. So doing this for me was an easy task. So I went to the board and I wrote eight birds, eight minus three died equals five. And the teacher said, that's right. Go to your seat. As though I had done something wrong. I was confident that it was right. And I couldn't understand what's transpiring. And as I went back to my seat, I realized that hostility was being directed at me from all my friends. These were all tykes with whom I played. All of a sudden, they were all angry with me. And I didn't understand what, what had happened. So I sat in my seat stewing, being angry at the teacher, not understanding my fellow learners, and planning in my head how I would tell my mother that I cannot return here because I'm very, very unhappy. And my mother picked me up, and she got a paper as we were leaving, and the paper said that I couldn't go back to school because I was Jewish. So I have a question for you. Um, I want to try to keep the timeline, but I'm also thinking, eventually I want to get to, I think, I see some, without getting too political, certain parallels to some things that are going on today with the way we are becoming very divisive with our new government and administration. But I'm wondering... So if you can possibly get into the mindset of that teacher, why were people, at least in the beginning, why were they complicit in this? Was it through fear themselves associating with someone that was Jewish? Or did they believe this? Like, what, what do you think? Well, I think it's very much like people behave all the time. I were, were tribal, do you think? That, that may be but I don't know how important it is. I think people want to associate with the superior person in the group. Mm. And in my class, the okay. teacher the was, alpha. and so they wanted to 
ident I think they wanted to identify with him, certainly not with me, right. who was put down and read and told to go to my seat, that there was no interest in doing that. So they they were kissing up. Okay. So how did things then obviously this in itself is awful, but had it I guess what changes did you start to see where this becomes like this is really uncomfortable and not okay to be talking to kids or even adults like this to it becoming something like more dangerous? You mean what's happening to us today? No, I mean, uh, so back then. So you're, you're six. Yes, I didn't know what more, worse be. It, I didn't understand how society works. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand how anger spreads. Right. I didn't understand. I was a little girl, and I just wanted to be happy. And I wasn't happy, so I was going to tell my mother that I'll stay with her where, where I was happy. And, and I think in some sense, even adults behaved like children. I think some things are so hard to to consider that we avoid looking. We don't want to see. But I, I read Elie Wiesel. He yeah. is, he's the man who woke the world up. Right. You know, this used to be a secret. In textbooks that predated Wiesel, this is a footnote mm. on the World War II. The truth is that this has now become the issue because we see it happening all over. Hatred is spreading. Right. And we, we have the wisdom, the insight, the, the adult attitude of wanting to say, well, how do we stop it? What do we do? We have to go back to the source and we examine and we tell each other and we don't agree with each other and we discuss. But you see, that's good. The human heart, whatever, requires human understanding. Right. And our disagreeing doesn't frighten me at all. It's when we start doing terrible things that I worry. But when, when it's just discussion and we disagree, I think that's wonderful. I celebrate American noise. It's right. good noise. But some noises are not good, and we're beginning to hear them. Am I frightened now? No, I'm not frightened now. I am frightened for the future, because where is it going? Right. So in your personal timeline, then, you're, you're six years old, you had this incident in school. What, what happens next? Well, we're still home, and we have the good fortune to have with us three uh, German uh, officers of the German Nazi army living in our house. Because our town being very small, they had nowhere to stay. Wow. So they were assigned private homes. And three of them were assigned to our house. And the German uh, army, German people were very beautifully brought up. And the German soldiers behaved very beautifully. Oh, wow. And we had a great advantage. Our advantage was that Yiddish 
is medieval German, you know, when the Jews came running away from defeat by the Romans, they wound up God knows where. Those that wound up in Germanic-speaking areas created Yiddish from German, which was helpful to us with our three guests, particularly one, which is, I think, this, this thread keeps me filled with hope because I say to myself, if there could be one German that can become a friend of Jews, then there could be others who become friends of others. I don't know who, what, where, when, but friendship is possible. Even if you've been brought up to believe that you are an Übermensch, and that the Jews are the lowest of the low Untermenschen, and this man befriends my father, a Jew, and the two of them play chess as often as possible, and they talk in this Yiddish-German kind of thing. And my father is learning what this is all about, which he had never known. Now, Mr. Arnold, the German man, was a teacher like yourself, a curious teacher (laughs) who was dabbling in human thoughts. And Mr. Arnold was explaining things to my very unsophisticated provincial father. My father had a Jewish education because to Jews that was very important. So maybe that helped him. They say that lawyers are helped by Talmudic education because they are they're picking on thoughts and they're playing with thoughts and so on. I don't know how true those things are, but I know that my father benefited greatly from knowing Mr. Arnold because my father learned from Mr. Arnold that if you care, you don't just sit still. You do something, whatever you can. And he said to my father, Mr. Engelberg, if you don't make a move to try and save your family, you will lose them. Wow. That warning came to my provincial Polish Jewish father from a German in the Nazi army. Notice I don't call him a Nazi. Right. Because how could he be? A Nazi is someone who believes that his race is superior and everybody else is inferior. This man, no, he treated my father like a friend. And he was my friend, my father's teacher. And he really is the beginning of my chain of hope. I have a long chain of hope, and he is the beginning of he, it. He probably took a big risk by doing that too, right? I don't think he took a risk because oh, okay. he knew my father wasn't going to be okay. trapped. That's for sure. And, you know, in those days, we didn't have bugs all over that were yeah. listening and picking <laughs> up sounds. We, You could say whatever you wanted in your house. So... I I knew he was that, or I know what I knew then. I don't know, but I look back all the time, and I know that Mr. Arnold did this out of kindness, out of wow. a a conviction 
that human beings are, after all is said and done, after all the differences, human beings are creatures that have needs which are universal. Do you, so Mr. Arnold's words to your father and his warning, did that mean get out of Poland? Well, he didn't know what we could do. It was mm. late in the game. Okay. We, were, we were a defeated country. All doors were closed. But you know a lot of Jews, well, not a lot, but there was a considerable number of Jews who saved themselves by having people that gave them certificate uh, proof of being non-Jews. Oh, wow. in, other, in other words, the church issues something, I don't even know what, which makes gives you uh, credibility as okay. a Catholic. Poland is Catholic, so we, we were either Jewish or Catholic. Uh, the the people, women often dye their hair blonde. Right. Because uh, men, I guess, dyed their hair blonde too, but men, you know, because of circumcision, couldn't get away as often as women. Women wow. did get away very often. That's wild. Fairly often by looking Catholic. Right. Which men changed the color of your hair. Uh, so Mr. Arnold was suggesting to my father that my father use his wherewithal to find a means, like for example, that in those days we didn't know about Anna Frank, and we didn't know that her father was creating a parallel existence to their German life in, in Denmark. We didn't know these things. But he was thinking that maybe he could do this, go to a different community and pretend to be a non-Jew. I don't know what he was thinking, but he was always saying, we must always try to find a way, and you have to start quickly and do something. Well, my father never started quickly because there oh, no. was nothing he could do until it was too late not to do anything. When in 1942, the Holocaust began in my community. You know, it didn't start all over, boom, a bell rang and the Holocaust started. They took it, one community. It was quite hidden at first, right? Yeah, they, they were secretive. A lot of Germans denied to this very day. Right. But you know the interesting part about Germans? They study about it, and they discuss it. And yes, some of the real writers still deny, oh, those were bakeries. Where does that come from, that denial? Denial comes from a wish that it hadn't happened. So do you think deep down those people maybe know, and they just... Yes, I yeah. think so. Wow. Uh, we we do it in our own little lives. That's we true. sort of deny. Oh, Uncle So and So, he's a nice guy, but he's a dirty old <laughs> man. Uh, well, he just likes to, you know, fool around. That's right. denial. Okay. So this is what what happened with the German people. They they didn't 
didn't respond in a responsible fashion to what happened. And therefore now they are shamed into looking for other things. But it's impressive to me that so many come right out and say, we have ruined our future. No, they didn't. They can redeem themselves. Everyone can. I truly believe in a second chance and maybe even a third. I don't know how many. Do what is right. Never mind what was done. Do what is right now. Help others. Do what you can to make the world a better place. That's my passion. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, just a, a quick personal aside. Like I, I love that that your mindset because um, I'm German. My dad's mother, so my grandmother, she's passed away, but she lived in Germany. And her house, where did she live? I think she lived in Berlin. And her house was hit by a bomb. And she was the oldest sibling, and she gathered up her siblings, and they walked out of the town. I'll have to ask my dad how this happened, but she got out of Germany, and she snuck in illegally to the United States through Canada. And I know my dad growing up, like, there was a lot of German backlash. And I almost want to say, like, as it should be, but... He, he's just a guy who comes from a, a family that in its own way was kind of victimized by this. And so it's just, it's cool to hear that you can sort of separate out like the common German people from what was happening within the Nazi party and all that. Well, the Nazi party was a, you know what it was? I think it was a group of people who were really not particularly gifted mm. and then had an opportunity to shine. Right. It's irresistible for some to exercise that opportunity, and they did. Mm. And, you know, when Hitler started, their, his party was 20 guys right. with no money, nothing. And then it just took off. And when he was put in jail for trying to take power by force, that's when he really grew in, in power. Yeah. And can this happen elsewhere? Of course it can. Can it happen to us? God forbid. Yes, it can. Will we do better because we've learned something? Well, that's what we're all about, you and me and others who come to the fold. And we struggle, and we, we hope to succeed. And if we succeed, our, my, grand, my children are grown up like me. I expect them to be fellow responsible okay. people. <laughs> but my grandchildren are probably closer to your age. Yeah. And as a result... You should benefit from the fruits of labor done to, to make life better. Well, that's why I'm so happy that, that you're here sharing this story because, you know, anybody, anyone can listen to this for free. And uh, I'm hoping that it, it serves as, as a piece of education for people. Um, so back on your timeline, at, at, at this moment, you're saying now it's too late almost, or it is, we have to act. The Holocaust has come to my community in Poland. So what's next? What happens? Okay. In 1942, 
the placket that they usually hung on the church wall. Notice, they give their instructions by hanging them on the church wall. In other words, they're telling Catholics, this is your church. This is where your information comes from. Those instructions used to come regularly, and the townspeople used to go and read and do without question, as though it were God speaking, whatever it said, because you were you were challenging them to kill you if you didn't do it. So everybody obeyed. There was no disobedience of any kind. And one day my father comes home extremely upset because the thing always started with the date and then it said, citizens of Ujejovice, that's my town of birth. You must, and it told you what you must do, you may not, and it told you what you may not do. This particular day, there was the date, and it didn't say citizens of Ujejovice, it said Jews of Ujejovice. You must turn in all your valuables to headquarters, the biggest house in town where the owners had the means and ran away. The man's name was Kopetsky. I understand he didn't own, but represented the owner in my town. Okay. Uh, they ran away. They left the house vacant. The German mommy moved in. And we had to bring all our valuables to headquarters. And my mother, when she, her, my father, my angry father told her that, he was very angry that day because he wanted to know what gave them the right to take away his Polish citizenship. After all, he was born here. Who are they right. to separate us from the rest of the community? This was uh, Nazi segregation of the community. So he was angry. And he finally told my mother what she said, you're angry, you're angry, but tell me what am I supposed to do? And he said, you're supposed to gather all your valuables and take them to headquarters. And the, they were very specific, you know, you should be proud of German, uh, how shall I call it? Every time I went to night school in college, I'm interrupting, but I have to no, tell you, okay. I went to night school in college. And it was a struggle. And every time I needed help, if there was a German around, that's where I looked for help. Because they're methodical, mm. they are uh, accurate, they are, they're, they're, they're very good at doing what they're doing. And I got very good help. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was my little secret. Oh, this yeah. is the way I, I learned a lot of things I would not have learned because I was very poorly prepared. Even after preparation, I was poorly prepared for college studies because I had lost many years. I hadn't gone to school, really school, till I came to this country at the age of 13. Wow. So that left me kind of, you know looking all the time for help, for understanding. Anyway, uh, 
is the reason that you're, ha- uh, it, or at least what they're saying, like you're handing valuables so that they can use these f- to, f- to help fund the war effort? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. Either the war effort or maybe some went into their pockets. I don't know. Yeah. But they, sure. t- they impoverished the countries that they defeated, mm. and they particularly impoverished the Jewish people. Particularly, it's also just sort of like a like a humiliation thing too, right? <sighs> they were there to to fight a war and win mm. by all means, so they needed yeah, everything they could and, get. Okay. And of course, many you you read about the art pieces that they course, find yeah. now and trace them and so on. It uh, you know what it is. Human beings, given an opportunity, will become bad. Hmm. And that's what happened. If you can get away right. it's kind with of if murder, no, one, if no one's looking, right? That's yeah. it. Wow. So my mother got her jewelry and her skirts. In those days, it was skirts. It was no pants. Okay. And she sewed her jewelry into oh, wow. the hems of her skirts. And my father had dollars. Why? Because he had brothers in the United States, two of them. When my oldest uncle, my father's oldest brother, came back from defeat in World War I, he announced to his family that he will not stay here, that he is leaving this country wherever he can go, because this is a bloody, hateful, hateful place. And they will kill me if they can. Now, mind you, this tells me that in his community, where he was known, he was liked and got along with everyone. But those who didn't know him, the soldiers, but found out he was a Jew, hated him for being Jewish. So he wanted no part of that existence, and he announced that that he would leave. He came, I don't know how he made his way here, but you know that they had a huge immigration in the 20s, a huge immigration from Europe to the the United States. Many of those immigrants were Jews, many. So he was among them, and he brought another brother and left two brothers in, the, in Poland to take care of my grandfather. Of course, my father couldn't have come because his situation kept changing. He got married. He had a child number one, me, child number two. There were five daughters in my family. So my father was always trapped because his status changed all the time. And you know how immigration is. It's always difficult. Don't think that this is the only difficult case of immigration. No, it's always very hard. But my uncles were here making money, working like slaves. I, I... when I remember a few of the stories they told about their work, I say to myself, and they took part of those earnings and sent them to their brothers in Poland. What remarkably good men these were. But they did that. Yeah. Now, my father knew that dollars 
had tremendous value because America stood behind the dollar. So my father did not spend the dollars ever, ever. He spent only his lotus, which were worthless because Poland was in a difficult situation. So anyway, my father takes his dollars and sews them into the shoulder pads of his jackets. And that worked? Sure. Wow. That that was the way we finally got saved. Wow. So now, what do they hand in? They have to hand in their valuables. So I, I don't know what my mother carried off there, but she did take whatever little she could. But they didn't know what to expect, so they settled. And there was, my, my father and mother felt a little more secure because of what they had hidden. My mother had a fur coat, and she said, no way will one of those such-and-such Nazis keep warm under her coat. No way. She wrapped it up, put it in a package that uh, she carried to her neighbor, uh, a Catholic friend, and said to her, one day we'll all be free. And when we are, I will freely come back and say to you, give me my coat. And the lady said, but of course. (laughs) And the deal was made. And the night before resettlement day, see, they gave us a date ahead of time on such and such a date in, I, I think it's August. I always have to look at the history books when it is. In August of 1942, we were being resettled to the east. Why were they resettling us? Well, if you ask them, they had a propaganda thing ready for you by way of an answer. In the East, you will have it better. Better homes, better jobs, better schools, better health care. Everything would be better in the East. Now, wouldn't we Americans go with better, better, better? But we're talking about ghettos, right? We're talking about the fact that they deceived us. Mm. In my town, in my entire region, and I'm sure it's because of my father, no one was deceived because Mr. Arnold had warned my father. Mr. Arnold used to say to my father, all people tell lies. They're little lies. They mean nothing. They're homeless, but they tell them for whatever purpose they have. But big lies, be careful of the big lies. They kill. And my father heard this. He says, that's a lie. I know there's nothing in the East. There's nothing better there. It's a wilderness. That is a lie that will kill. And he informed everyone he could, which don't think was easy because... No radio, no no TV, the newspaper is garbage. How do you inform? By word of mouth. One told the other and so on. And the only person who showed up at the train station where we were supposed to be was my grandfather. Why didn't he go with you guys? My grandfather had great faith in the German people. Oh, man. 
You know, all that art and all those books and all that excellent work they did in science and, and math, my grandfather would read about it and he would be so proud that human beings could do this. These are the human beings that will give us a better world, said my grandfather. But it got into the wrong hands. Was that the last time you saw him? Wow. Whew. Yes. But we ran away from home. And that's how I got here to you. <laughs> okay, so we're at the, the runaway. How, how does this happen? Like, did Mr. Arnold help? Mr. Arnold clued my father in. Okay. My father was not really an adventurous kind of person. He was a, a, a very nice, quiet, um, sort of scholarly, like his own father a little bit. But adventure was not his cup of tea. He, he would have turned his back on it. He would have obeyed the orders. But Mr. Arnold changed my father. And how did he change him? By saying to him, if you don't do anything, your children will be the first to die. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so where did you go? And did you leave by night? Or? We left at night. The night before resettlement day, we left, and everybody carried something except the little babies. And uh, we went into the fields. The fields had just been harvested. And the farmers built these, I, I'll call them haystacks. Okay. It was all kinds of grains all over the fields. And we would come to the haystack, dig out the bottom, creep inside, and stay there all day long. We pulled back whatever we pulled out wow. to cover us, and we stayed there all day long. Now, when we, my family, got there, we were mother, father, and four girls. I was the oldest of the four. And how old were you? I was eight now. Only eight still. Eight years old. And I was really thought of as an adult because oh I, they needed me to, to think I'm an adult, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. And, and the others were younger. Now, my very youngest sister died before we left home oh, because wow. she was a twin, and mm. she was the younger twin, and the younger twin is weaker and often needs a little help, but we had no help. There was nothing we could do to get help. It was wartime. We were Jews. Uh, there were no doctors around. There was nothing, no medication, nothing at all. I don't know what they give a twin to help a twin, but they, we had none of it, mm -hmm. and she died. Wow. So she was laid to rest, but her older sister clung to life for an unexpected period of time. I guess the will to live was there. Anyway, we are a family of six, four children to, and parents. My mother has an un, a brother, my uncle, who has a wife and three children. And mother, uh, my mother and her brother decide that we are in bad straits, but if we go together, life will be easier. We'll have each other. We'll help each other. 
And so we have pile number one, and they have pile number two. They're our neighbors, and we use these piles as our homes. Did you come across anyone else hiding in the field? Or did yes. Soldiers no, walk by? No, we didn't by? come across them, no? but we heard them being shot. Oh, my God. Yeah. We did not meet anyone. And one of the people who, in the course of time, see, we do every night, we march off to a new field. We don't stay more than one night in one haystack for fear that someone will notice something and then we're gone. So we change every night. And as we walk to a new field, we uh, shake trees, get fruit, and carry it off with us. And we are surviving. Now, my uncle Naftali, that wonderful uncle who taught me numbers and ABCs, wanted to go with us in the worst way. But my father refused to allow him. My father Why? was the older brother because my father said, we're not going to make it. This, is, this war might last too long for us to survive. Therefore, I insist that you run on your own because you're young and strong and fast and clever and you know the lay of the land. You will make it. And you must make it because you will have to tell the world what people do to helpless people. Wow. <laughs> and I think that is part of my push-pull. Did he make it out? No. Oh, my gosh. You see, the Germans had what they called Einsatzgruppen. The Einsatzgruppen's uh, business was going on motorcycles and finding the Jews who never showed up at the train station. They were here. They can't get out. They, they had no means of getting out. They have to be somewhere here. Where are they? And they found them, and they shot them, and my uncle was among them. But we kept going. Did you ever see them or hear them as you were? The shooting? Yeah. yeah we yeah. heard the shooting, but we didn't, didn't know whom they were shooting. They were shooting my grandfathers. Not one grandfather was taken, but they were shooting my grandfather, my mother's father. His, his family was very large, so they split up in groups. And he was with two daughters, a son-in-law, and two sons, and they shot them all. Wow. Did you have, like, um, did you know, what, like, in which direction you were headed, or did you have an ultimate destination you were trying to get to, or you, you were just hiding? We had no idea where we're going. And to this very day, I say to myself, how did my father do this? There, you know, fields have no address. They look the same. How do you find a field at night once you leave it to go to town begging for things? My father always found us back. So he would leave to try to get food? At, to try and get whatever he could. Wow. Yes. And people did help? No. Wow. Most of the time, no. no. One, one particular case that 
is, well, it stands out in our memories because the friendship sort of continued after the war. The Orzechowski was the gentleman's name, who was a Polish Catholic from my community. My father and he were very friendly. They played cards together, chess. They, they were friends. And my father went to him hoping that he would help. And one night he gets to his, he finally gets to his house and he knocks and the door is opened by his son, a young son who was very anti-Semitic as a boy. See, it was very stylish to be anti-Semitic. And this young boy who used to knock off, uh, you know, Jewish religious men wear hats. Right. The less religious wear little skull caps. The those who are even less religious wear nothing. We are a, a funny group. We we have a range mm. of that beliefs that is extraordinary. But my father confronts Bullock. That's the son who was definitely anti-Semitic. And when he sees my father, my father is convinced that this is the end, that he will not get away from Bullock. He was a strong young man. And Bullock says, he calls my father Leibusch by his Polish name, Leibusch. And he hugs him. And he takes off everything that's possible to give to my father, his sweater, his jacket, his shoes. And he says to my father, there's someone there you shouldn't run into. He's talking to my father. I want you to come back. Come back whenever you see a light in the window. Come back because... My father will know what happened, and he will get something ready for you. My father was never able to go back, but the gift he got was the hug and clothing from Bullock, because it's nice to know that in a pinch, what seems anti-Semitic is really yeah, a superficial thing. I guess that kind of gives you a bit of hope, too, that there might be someone else along the way that might be willing to do the same. Yeah. Whew, wow. Yeah. So we are in the fields living next to my aunt and uncle, and I don't know what your time spot is, but it might be a good place to stop and see how it does, and we can make another date for the continuation. All right, that's it, folks. That is part one of the life story of Sally Frischberg. Coming up soon, there will be a second episode with Kevin Sharkey telling his awesome stories about a van trip that he took across the country when he was younger. I'm going to have Graham Holiday's episode up here soon. And also, in April, I'm going to Kenya, which I'm super excited about. I'm going to Nairobi, and I'm going to try to bring my Zoom with me to talk with a safari guide if I can, and possibly do an interview with somebody who works for the UN. A lot of cool stuff coming up, really excited. Hope you like this one. Again, check me out on Instagram at t.vetter, V-E-T-T-E-R, and you can shoot me an email at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com.
All right, until next time, take care of each other. Peace. Thank you.